Um, so we're looking at the arm of God. So let me just first read the overarching passage from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up a shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So that's the context. And Martha started last week with an instruction um, about being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so we're looking at the belt of truth. Now, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he was in jail, so he would have seen through the father's cell a soldier like the one that was put up on the door. Um, and in that context, the belt was the thing that held the armour together and gave the soldier strength. So, if I see if my little clicker's working. The modern day equivalent I can find. Ah, <laughs> oh, I know it's not working. I can put the magic thing in there. Ta da! strengthens our core, what does that mean? And I think that the real key to a strong core is getting a good grasp of our identity and the identity of God. Now we've been thinking an awful lot about who God is this morning and I've been reading this in that. And I want to focus a bit more on the second part. And the question is, who do you think you are? And thankfully, Ephesians is full of this. The first three chapters doesn't contain a single command. <coughs> verse after verse after verse after verse, telling Ephesians, this is who you are in Christ. So we're going to look at Ephesians 1, Ian's going to come and read, and I want you to be looking out for all the things that Paul is saying to Ephesians, they are in Christ. So there are quite a lot, so it should uh, keep you alert. Morning, everyone. If we turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians, and we'll start reading at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I read somewhere that um, in the original language there's not that much punctuation and there's a sense that Paul has done this stream of consciousness getting more and more excited about who God is and what he's done for us and who he believes in our Christ. So, who does he say we are? This is just some, I'm sure you've spotted others. Um, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're in Christ, he repeats that a lot. <coughs> we're chosen, predestined, adopted. We receive the grace, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we're for the praise of his glory, we've been included, we've been marked with the Holy Spirit, and we've been guaranteed an inheritance. And that's just chapter one. I was quite restrained just in here to read chapter one. I thought we could read the whole thing, but then we would be here <coughs> a lot longer than perhaps we ought to be. So, but I did think I'd pull out a few of the things in chapters two and three to give you a flavour of what else Paul is saying about who we are. We've been made alive and saved. We have been raised with Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. We're God's workmanship. We've been brought near, we've been reconciled to God and to one another. And we're able to approach the Father through the Spirit. And we're fellow citizens. <coughs> and notice that Paul certainly isn't saying, this is going to be someday, guys, look ahead to a wonderful future. He's saying this is what you are already, this is what God has wanted you, this is what you've done, and this is who you are. This is a reality for now. It doesn't always feel like that, perhaps, but Paul is saying this is who we are now. And each of those things, if you're talking in your own right, I'm very glad I'm not having to do a talk on predestination, or what it means to be chosen. Um, <coughs> to be, it's still probably a six months of uh, teaching series on how unhappy exactly what these mean. But, 
it would be helpful, probably, just to touch on what Paul means when he talks about the natural realm and the spiritual realm. He says, again and again, in the heavenly realms. And we don't always think very clearly about what the difference is between the natural realm and the spiritual realm. Um, and we're not always familiar with, with that sort of language. And certainly, for me anyway, it's not always a natural part of my thinking day to day. But the, the natural realm is what we see, what we feel, what's true in the, in the physical sense around us. But there is a spiritual reality, there's a heavenly realm, there's a spiritual um, realm and environment that we don't necessarily see, we don't necessarily pay any attention to. But, interestingly, what is true and what seems true in our natural world is not always the truth of the spiritual realm. So what do I mean by that? Well, there are really great examples of the miracles that Jesus did. The truth in our natural realm says five loaves and two fish do not feed 5,000 people. Anyone think that that's enough? Probably not even enough if you have a few people around for Sunday lunch. And yet the truth in Jesus' experience is that in the kingdom of God there is no lack. The kingdom is one of abundance and overflow. And what Jesus is able to do is recognise the spiritual reality in the heavenly realms and say, that is truth. That is the reality of this world. And bring the spiritual reality into the natural world. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of examples you could go through in the Bible where Jesus is bringing the spiritual truth to overbear the natural truth. When we pray, he talks to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's asking us to pray the same. Would your kingdom come in this realm? Would your spiritual reality be true here? So that's what he's encouraging us to pray. So how do we do that? When we buckle on the belt of truth, this is what we need to be doing. We need to say, all that stuff in Ephesians that Paul's saying we are, we're chosen, we're loved, we're adopted as sons, that is the truth about us. And we need to be able to believe and build our lives on that and not on what the natural world tells us is true. So what stops us? So we've looked at what God says, but unfortunately there's more voices in this world. The natural world gives all sorts of messages about what the truth should be. Our culture does. Tells us what we should be, what we need to have more of, what we need to be like, what the truth is about this world. Our upbringing, how we relate to our family, how our parents related to us, our experiences as we've grown up and as we lived in the world, all give us messages about what truth is. And then words spoken by family, colleagues, friends, bosses, all give us messages. And some of them might be positive, some of them might be completely in line with what God says is true about us, but others aren't. And we need to be able to recognise the difference and make sure that we pick the right ones to believe in. I think there are a few dangers, there are probably many more, but particularly when we talk about thoughts, I don't know whether any of these sound familiar. Things like, oh, I've always been like that, I've always been a bit of a warrior, I've always been rubbish at, such and such. But what about not enough? Have you ever feel not enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not successful enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not whatever, enough. People, maybe people have told you that, maybe your experiences have given you that impression. Or the opposite, too much. I'm too bossy, I'm too boisterous, I'm too miserable, I'm too cheerful. We get all sorts of messages. How do we tell the difference? What we believe determines how we behave. This is why it's so important to know who we are. Because what we believe deep down will come out of us in what we say, what we do, what we think, and how we behave. So it's really, really important. 
It's a quote from um, Omi Newell, who said, Over the years, I've come to realise that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity or power, but self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticises me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, <laughs> forgotten, rejected and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. So he's saying that if we listen to the voices that contradict what God says about us, that's a real danger to the spiritual life because God says we're the beloved. We're the ones his son died for. So what do we hear about it? Well, thankfully, Paul has some instructions for us. He moves on from his outpouring of how long it is and what God's done to give us some commands and some suggestions. So here's Ephesians 4. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put off the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the top two red statements, futility of, the, of their thinking and hardening of their hearts, we'll hopefully have time to come back to that a little bit, but for now, just note that there's something about mind and there's something about heart. But we'll say what we need to do is put off the old self that says we're rejected, abandoned, no good, worthless, and put on the new self. And how does that happen? It's an attitude of mind. Now, I would love you to, and I bet you didn't think you were going to be asked to do this this morning, imagine that you're going for a new job. You've decided you want a job, and you've decided you're going to go for a job at Disney World. <laughs> now, you're, going to, you're not going to go for Mickey Mouse, that might be a bit too ambitious. But what you are going to do is you're going to apply to be on their team that goes around the park, making sure it's all nice and tidy, emptying bins, picking up litter, that sort of thing. And I want you to think about what would guide your behaviour going for that job. So you've gone for the interview and you've got the job brilliant. So how, what would guide your behaviour when you're thinking about that job? You might think, well, obviously it's going to be quite important to keep things clean. So I need to do a good job and be really diligent about thinking of even the smallest bit of litter. And actually, it'd probably be a good idea if no one really noticed me very much because that might give them the impression that the part needs cleaning. Wouldn't it be lovely if they just went around never seeing a cleaning person or a piece of litter? So you might have that attitude to how you approach your work. But I've discovered that Disney World have a very interesting way of viewing their staff. They don't call their staff employees. They call them all cast members. Whether they're Mickey Mouse or a cleaner, they are a cast member. They don't get interviewed for a job. They get auditioned for a role. They don't get a uniform on their first day. They get a costume. Again, whether it's Mickey Mouse or a cleaner. And it's got me thinking, how does that, the values that Disney World hold about all of their staff and the experience they want their guests to have, how does that affect 
will guide your own behaviour? What attitude will you now have knowing that you're a cast member, you've got a role to play? I would think that you would then approach the job far more about interacting with the guests. Actually, they might come up to you and ask questions, so how would you deal with that? Well, you'd be individual, you would be engaging with them as a part of a cast as opposed to someone who's just trying to clean the park and keep out of the way. And I just thought that's a really interesting picture of actually how we need to change our attitudes in our minds, that we're not basing our lives on this rejection, victim, misery, words. We're basing it on the truth. And if we can change our attitudes to be basing it on the truth, our behaviour becomes different. So, oh, I forgot to give you a picture of Mickey Mouse. I'll give you a minute just to look at how cheering he is. Um, so, how can we do it? Um, we were looking a couple of weeks ago at the parables of Jesus, and we were looking at the two builders, the wise man and the foolish man, and where you build your house. And that got me thinking as well. And I remember, I mean, it's very obvious, but it's hard work being a wise builder, isn't it? You have to dig for longer, you have to work hard, you have to get through the rock, you have to, you know, the foolish man sat and joined his house long before you've ever got anything resembling a house up. So it's hard work. <coughs> I actually realise it's a daily decision. I, I think I was tempted to think that I chose to build my house on the rock. Big tick, that decision's made, sorted, move on. But actually it's a daily decision. Am I going to keep making wise choices with my building? Am I going to go the extra mile when I think, oh, I'm really head up and digging these foundations? Am I going to keep going? Or am I going to take shortcuts? Am I going to make do? Am I going to accept less than the best? And we're not starting, this is, this is something I've not really thought about before, but we're not starting a new project. It's not, okay guys, let's build a house. It's, we've got a house that we've been building all our lives, and we've got to renew the one we've got, and not start a new house. If you, perhaps if you're starting afresh, that would be easier. But actually, how do we bring all of our past and our experiences, good and bad, and renew it with the attitude of mind changing to base it all on the values that um, of who we truly are. And I think the practical side is this process of recognising the lies, repenting and then replacing. So in the context of the, I'm trying to keep a single metaphor, Helen, just that we learn about the church meeting on Tuesday, but Helen doesn't really like mixed metaphors, so forgive me if I slip, but I was trying to keep it all about houses and buildings. So, how do we recognise those bricks in our house, in our lives, that are rotting, that actually are crumbling away, maybe out of alignment and sticking out or making everything a bit wobbly? How do we recognise that? How do we, then we repent of it and how do we replace it with, <coughs> with the truth? So I'm going to talk you through the process a little bit, give you an example, and then we're going to have an opportunity to try this, try to make it practical, so that actually this is something that we do. This isn't something that you hear about on Sunday and go, oh great, I know that now and go away and don't know anything about it. So, recognising the lie. I would always start with God. Asking God to show you what you believe. Because sometimes it's really hard to, to really get down to what you truly believe. Your head gets in the way and you think, well I know that, but actually do you really believe it? So asking God for revelation is really key to this. And also, you might find that there's, you know, you might be aware that there's 10, 20 bricks in your wall that really need sorting out. You can't, if you take them all out at once, it'll just be a disaster. But actually asking God, God, what is it that I need to be working on now? What truth do I need to, to learn? This 
at this time. And then a really good way of, of trying to be aware of whether things are lie or truth. Ask yourself the question, does it bring life or does it bring death? Jesus said in John 10, he was talking about it in the context of the, being a shepherd and the gate for sheep, he said that the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. So the devil in his schemes that we're hearing about in Ephesians is to come in to steal some things from you, to kill and to destroy, to bring in destruction. So if you've got a thought or an experience or someone's spoken a word over you that says, actually, you are worthless, you'll never amount to anything, if that's what experience you've got, does that bring life or does that bring death? Well, it brings feelings of fear or insecurity. It brings death. So it must be a lie. What about some of the stuff that from Ephesians 1? You're adopted as sons of God. Does that bring life or does that bring death? Well, hopefully, that inspires you feelings of security, of love, of peace, of joy. So it brings life. So sometimes it can be really easy to spot the lies and the truth by asking that question. Not always. The devil does like to deceive. So he does work subtly and he kind of twists things. But it's a really good starting point. So what happens when you recognise the lie? Actually, maybe you think, maybe your lie is, um, I need to perform, I need to be successful to earn God's love. Maybe that's the lie that God's saying, actually, I think deep down you might believe that. So what do you do? Well, you repent of it. Now, we clearly saw in Ephesians 1 that Paul says, you are already forgiven in Christ. You're already redeemed, you're already saved. So, the repenting isn't from a place of insecurity about what God might do. It's not in another place. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. So it's not a worrying place. But it is just a place of acknowledging to God. Actually, God, I recognise that I'm basing my life on a lie. That I have to be successful to earn your approval. And I'm really sorry that I've been basing it and I've been behaving as if that is true. I choose to turn to what is true. So that brings us to the third, replace with the truth. If you took out all your bricks out of the wall that you identified the lies, but didn't put anything in their place, I'm not sure you'd be that much better off. Because it, you'd still be in an unstable situation, there'd be gaps. So it's really important that we replace with the truth. And again, I'd go back to God and say, okay, this, I recognise this is a lie, what truth do I need to believe to replace that lie? So in the example of success and performance, you need to know that you are loved unconditionally, that you can't um, fall out of the, the grace of God, because it's freely given to us. So, I think that's all I wanted to say on, oh, there's a quote, this, I thought the this quote is really helpful when we're thinking about replacing. There are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. So if we only decide that we're not going to believe what is the truth, we've only done half the job, we need to also believe what is true. So I want to give you an example um, from when I was, I was doing this quite early on when I first came across this idea of recognising the line and replacing it with the truth. And I just want to go back very briefly to the Ephesians 4 passage Remember the two red statements that I said hopefully we'd come back to, which talked about the futility of thinking and the hardening of hearts. So there's something 
important to recognise there's a difference between the mind and the heart. Quite often, you can believe something in your head, but it never takes root in your heart. And your behaviour flows out of your heart, your words come out of your heart. So, it's important that we are really honest with ourselves, and when God, and open to God to highlight them to us, what we don't really believe in our hearts. And I think a really helpful way to um, make that distance, that journey between the head and the heart, is to use imagery or pictures or story. We know that story is far more memorable than a whole load of words. If I asked, if I picked a few people at random and asked them to tell me the Beatitudes, I think there are probably some panic faces, and I'm not sure people would do a great job, in all honesty. But if I asked you to tell me the story of the sower or the lost sheep, I reckon you'd all be like, oh, yeah, I could do that, and tell me the story. We know that story helps us remember things. We know that story and images connect with us in a way that words don't always do. And especially if you have the two in conjunction with each other, it can be really powerful. So, when I first started this, the first thing I think God highlights to me, I don't know if you're going to see as well, and I hope it works with sound. Um, if not, I'll have to try and dub it for you. So this is going to be a very short clip from the film Thor. I don't know if you've all seen it, but um, Thor is the son of the god Odin, who's the chap in the picture, and um, towards the beginning of the film, he disobeys his father, he's told him to leave well alone in a certain situation, and he's gone and done his own thing and thought he can sort it out. So he's gone off and got into a real pickle. And his dad's had to step in, and they've just returned home, um, and they're having this encounter with this one. Oh, it doesn't work. Uh-oh. Oh, here we go. Maybe this will be better. Oh, the sound isn't working. My laptop is working. I can hear it. Okay. Oh, you see, there are clever people in this congregation. Let's try that again, shall we? Now I have to work out which bit of my computer... The sound comes out of. <laughs> anyone? Suggestions, anyone? Somewhere around here, I think. We'll see. Okay, I will tell you what he's saying. I'll let you watch it first. So he's saying to his son, You've opened this realm to the horrors and desolation of war by your disobedience. He's saying you're unworthy of your title, he's taking his cloak off him taking away his, um, yeah, not worthy of your title. And he keeps repeating that, you're unworthy, you're unworthy. And I will remove you from you, your power. You see all his powerful armour's coming off. And then he says, right at the end, he says, I owe you the father, cast him out. And Thor gets cast down and ends up on earth in the film. So, um, so what does that mean for What does that mean in my life? I was afraid of being walked backwards in a bright light. Um, what God, I think, was saying to me was, actually, and again, because I knew in my head the truth, but I wasn't really acting with it, I believed it. God was saying, you think that there's something you can do, some mess you can make of something, that will mean that I'll cast you out, that I'll take my presence away from you, that I'll take away <coughs> blessings that I've given you, and I'll cast you out because you've made a mess and you've done something stupid. And that was, I'd say, I didn't believe that in my head, because I'd ask you if I believe that. That's not true. But actually, if you looked at how I was behaving in some circumstances, you would think actually it was true. You know, that can play out in many ways in different people. 
But for me, it was playing out, you know, I had, there was a fear of failure. Actually, what happens if I try that and it goes wrong? What happens if, you know, do I risk doing something and stepping out? Because actually, what happens if it goes wrong and God crosses me and casts me out? Um, and of course, that's not true. Of course, it's not true. But I, I was acting like it, and it was affecting the way I was behaving in real life situations. So I recognised that, and the, the place then moved to repentance. So I said, you know, God, I'm sorry that this is what I've been basing my life on, and that's how I've been behaving, and I choose to believe the truth. Please show me what to replace this with that has the power of the truth. And um, again, he used a picture. This time it was with scripture, and I would encourage you whenever you particularly can get images, ask God for scriptures as well to back it up. Because that's just another check that actually you're not just imagining <coughs> wishful thinking that this is true, but actually it's backed up by God's word. And I think we'll be looking more at God's word later in the series when we talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So I asked God for this replacement, and he showed me the image of the father at the end of the prodigal son, where the son has made big mess, probably could have made a much bigger mess in his situation, and his life his decisions have been awful and he comes back and what does the father do? Cast him out and say why are you back here, go away, I don't want to see you again no, of course not, he runs to <coughs> him puts his cloak around him, he brings him in for a huge party, he doesn't wait to hear the big I'm sorry speech that he's prepared and the guilt and the he doesn't wait for that, he wraps his arm around, and that image was what God was saying this is the truth Actually, it doesn't matter if you mess up, it doesn't matter if you step out and make a huge hash of everything and you make stupid decisions. Actually, this is what I like, this is the truth. So I had to then try and believe that. And now, God is very good in, in my experience, he's very good at backing things up in many ways. So that's the image I've got. But around the same time, I'm on Twitter, but I don't tend to tweet very much. But I do like looking at other people's tweets and, and getting some inspiration from some quotes from some people. And around that time, I heard a quote from, I saw a quote from Bill Johnson, a pastor in America. And he said, when it comes to the kingdom, you can't lose anything through stupidity that you didn't gain from intelligence. I found that really helpful, because he's saying, and you've got to speak to that, but so you didn't earn any of this anyway. So why are you afraid of messing it up and losing it? by being stupid and making poor decisions. You didn't earn it through being intelligent and clever So what are you worrying about? So that's my example. I'd love to say that replacing a line of the truth is a one-time thing. It might be. Sometimes there's a line that you go, gosh, I didn't even know I believe that. This is the truth. And you're done. You never think of it again. But a lot of the times, they come back, the devil does try and push at our weak spots and try and bring it up, perhaps in a slightly different guise. But actually, you'd be more alert having recognised the line the first time. So now, if I'm in a situation where I'm thinking, actually, I don't want to do that, we're going to step out and mess up. I can go, actually, no, I've dealt with this already. And the truth is that I'm accepted, that I'm loved unconditionally. And the other thing I want to just end with before I get you guys having a go is the importance of other people in this. We talked earlier about discipleship groups and supporting each other. It might, not, it might be that um, it's your family members, it might be maybe a small group of prayer triplets, or, but I encourage you all to be certainly in a discipleship group that can help you with this. Actually, we're alert for each other as well as for ourselves. So now that you all know 
that I have I could potentially be still breathing alive in some circumstances that I need to perform and to be successful and do things well to make sure I stay in God's favour, you can actually challenge me on that. And actually you don't have to challenge the behaviour anymore because you're pointing to the truth and saying, actually you don't need to behave like that because remember you are chosen loved. It becomes far less about criticising the behaviour and far more about reminding people of the truth of who we are. So, there are some bits of paper in the back of the chair if you would find it helps. Recommending writing things down just helps um, get it out, externalising it from just your thinking. So there should be plenty if you can't see one around you, you sort of look around and cues around you behind you. Haven't got more moves forward, you'll probably there's probably loads in the back seats that so are now out of your reach. And it's been much nicer having you towards the front. So what we're going to do is we're just going to spend a couple of minutes with silence. And I encourage you to ask God to show you if there's a line that you are believing and behaving based on that he would like you to, um, to address. So we'll spend a couple of minutes doing that. And I'll invite us to repent of those if God's revealed something to us and then ask him to show us the truth. And then after that, we'll begin to worship our and lead leaders again. And there'll be people in the prayer zone, which is over in the kind of rectangle by the band area. Um, if you would like to pray with anyone about this or about something else, then please do come forward during the worship, and we'll be over there to do that. So, I hope that's done. So let's have a couple of minutes asking God to show us um, the lines. So I'll pray to start. Father God, thank you that your truth um, is reality, that you have won for us um, the reality of being raised with you, seated with you, and that we are chosen, loved, adopted, made alive. And God, I just pray that you would show us where our belief system does not match up with the truth of who we are. God, that you would gently reveal to us things in our minds and in our hearts that are not true, wherever they've come from, and that you show us the truth that we need to believe to replace those lies. Amen. God says. And finally, start asking God for the truth that you need to actively believe to replace what He has revealed to you. So, Father, I thank you that you are the source of truth, and that when we know the truth, it sets us free. By your spirit, that these lies that we've repented of, these truths that we've turned to, become these, these truths become the new bricks in our walls that we're building with you. Amen.